Jane Palma. And I'm Beth Bennett. This is How on Earth for Tuesday, December 2nd, 2014. Coming up, we'll hear about animal weapons and why biologist Douglas Emlin says that animal weapons in everything from dug beetles to saber-toothed tigers has him very worried about our human weapons. In principle, we should be safer because we have such a spectacularly large and expensive military. The problem is the rest of the story. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. It's well documented that when football players suffer concussion, it can lead to brain damage. But a new study from the Radiological Society of North American warns that the brains of football players can suffer damage even without concussion. To reach this conclusion, Christopher T. Whitlow at the Wake Forest School of Medicine used an advanced MRI technique to take a before-season brain snapshot of 24 high school players. For all games and practices, the players wore a device that measured hits to the head. During the season, each player occasionally did get hit. At the season's end, Whitlow took a follow-up snapshot of the players' brains and found alterations indicative of damage. These alterations were lower in players who suffered lighter hits. They were higher in players who suffered bigger hits. Whitlow cautions that it's too early to know whether or not these brain changes will have long-term consequences. However, it is clear that brain damage did occur even without concussions. Collagen is the most abundant protein in the human body. It's what holds together bones, muscles, skin, and tendons. Collagen gene defects cause a variety of hard-to-treat hereditary diseases in joints, eyes, kidney, and skin. For instance, in the skin, a severe condition known as, get ready for this, recessive dystrophic epidermolysis bullosa, we'll call it RDEB, causes chronic blistering that can lead to infections and lethal skin cancers. Now, a genetic treatment for RDEB is showing potential for many collagen disorders. To explain how, Stanford scientists, publishing in the journal Science last week, report that first they took normal skin cells from humans who suffer from RDEB. They used those skin cells to create stem cells. They inserted a corrected collagen gene into the stem cells, then injected those corrected cells into mice. Those mice produced layers of normal human skin, which the doctors then grafted back over the skin lesions on the humans with RDEB. This repaired the blistering. Although the grafts only last a few weeks, this success represents a possible first step in treating a variety of genetic diseases related to collagen, including some forms of cancer and heart disease. For those who like the idea of being a citizen scientist who is helping wild birds, mark your calendars for December 14th. That's the 73rd Boulder Audubon Christmas Bird Count. It's a way to help naturalists around the nation and even the world track trends in our bird populations. Beginners are welcome to join leaders who can teach you how to spot and count individual birds or even whole flocks of birds. More experienced folks are urged to be group leaders. To find out more about the upcoming bird count, check our website, howonearthradio.org.
You are tuned to How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Jane Palmer. From the horns of a t- on a tiny dung beetle to the fangs on a tiger, animals have amazing weapons. In his new book entitled Animal Weapons, Montana University biologist Douglas Emlin shares many reasons why animals have evolved complex tools for t- attack and defense. Emlin says the animal strategies are often similar to how human weapons have evolved. But his knowledge of animal weapons has led him towards serious concerns about our human weapons. For more, here's How on Earth Shelley Schlender talking to the author of Animal Weapons, Doug Emlin. Doug Emlin, I'm really worried about the world now because I just read your book, Animal Weapons. (laughs) Okay. Was that a question? (laughs) Yes, this is a question, and it's because I truly am more than a little bit worried about humans' place in the world right now because of reading your book where you talk about all these bugs. And I have to say I'm a little worried too, and that was a surprise. That was not something that I anticipated or set out to accomplished with this book. I'm a biologist. I work primarily on the evolution of weapons and beetles. And I had an opportunity a few years ago to step back and start reading the literature on weapons in all sorts of other animal species, including crazy flies with huge antlers and all of the deer and the caribou and fossil tusks and mastodons. And I promised the last thing in the world I expected was that there be any sort of doom and gloom or scary messages about where we are as a species or as a society today. But then you have all these fascinating examples where you look at parallels for what kind of animal weapons fit in with the kinds of human weapons that we've created, and it's very worrisome. So first of all, I should say, here I was, pouring through the biologies of all these different animals, and these are very different species. They're tropical dung beetles and mammoths that used to live on icy tundra. We're talking about species that are millions of times different in body size. They live in different habitats. All I wanted to do was tell their stories. And when I started pulling all the pieces of the stories together, the first surprise that hit me was that all these different species have the same story. The same kinds of characteristics trigger arms races in these species and lead to the evolution of big weapons. But the surprise number two came when my editors kept hinting, hey, you got to look at human weapons too. We want to see something on the military story. At first I resisted because I'm a biologist. But once I started digging into the military literature, I was astounded at how similar these things were. Things like the explosion in fleet size and ship size with ancient oared galleons in the Mediterranean or ironclad battleships. And it turned out that the circumstances that trigger arms races in animals are astonishingly similar to the circumstances that trigger arms races in our own military past. So let's look at some of that. Let's start with one of the reasons that you got interested in bugs in the first place. You were in a jungle and you'd slashed your finger. You needed to get it stitched, but nobody had sutures around. What did you do? We did the next best thing. This was when I was a graduate student and we were in the rainforest in Belize and I'd cut myself with a machete and I'd managed to slice my thumb almost completely to the bone. What we did was sterilize the wound by pouring rum into it, which is what any good field biologist camp has. And we used army ants to suture the wound. Army ant soldiers have really big heads with wide gaping jaws. And if you pick up one of these army ant soldiers and hold it against the wound, They clamp their jaws shut. They lock their mouths on there. And then you can pop the body off from the head and the head stays clamped. And so I had somebody help hold the cut shut. 
And then we took five or six army ants and placed them in succession along the wound and they snapped their jaws shut, pinched their bodies off. And we actually had pretty effective sutures. They worked really well. Army ants did not evolve to be sutures for your thumb, but on the other hand, that powerful jaw that you've described as being able to bite through a pencil is an example of a successful evolutionary development. So it's an example of a situation where these social insects have managed to escape a constraint. We don't see very many predators with big weapons, for example, because if they're carting around something that big, it slows them down, it impairs their mobility, and they can't catch their prey. But these social insects have solved that problem by having totally different castes or different types of workers within the colonies. So that there are workers that run around and do most of the colony cleaning and maintenance. And then there are specialized soldiers. And the only thing the soldiers have to do is fight. And because they don't have to do all these other basic tasks, it's been possible for their weapons to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And you end up with soldier casts in the ants and the termites that are pretty spectacular. They're essentially walking jaws. Or in some of the termites, you get walking squirt guns. These things have heads that don't have any eyes. They don't have mouths. They're like a big bulbous tube, and they squirt sticky silly string out that can tangle up ants in fights. And you only get these types of extremes in these animals because they're able to have specialized soldiers that don't have to do anything else. An example from humans. If you want to think of the closest parallel to things like ant colonies, where you have big clunky soldiers and then little fast ant workers, the parallels there might be what we see in naval fleets, where you would get the biggest battleships, but the biggest ships were also the slowest. And so you'd have to surround your fleets of big ships with lots of smaller ships, destroyers and cutters and things that could run interference. If we switch gears to a different kind of strategy for animal weapons, I think my favorite animal in your book was the fiddler crab. (laughs) One of my favorites, too. And when we talk about fiddler crabs, we're not talking about one or two on a beach. There are at night tens of thousands of fiddler crabs out walking along trying to establish territories. Yes, and fiddler crabs are neat examples for a variety of reasons. Number one, they fight over burrows. This was one of the neatest discoveries of this whole process of researching this book was realizing that there are certain types of ecological situations that predispose populations to arms races and to the evolution of these big weapons. And tunnels or burrows seem to be one of the most universal of these because what happens is inside a tunnel, it's a narrow tube and only one rival can enter into the tunnel at a time. So you end up having these fights that come out face-to-face in contests of strength, duels. And the fights are very predictable that way. And in those types of fights, males with the bigger weapons tend to win. So fiddler crabs fight over burrows, which is a classic cauldron for the evolution of big weapons, if you will. And they have the biggest weapons relative to body size of any living animal species. As we talk about weapons, you also have a concept called basically the honesty of the weapon. So what happens with weapons, once they've been involved in an arms race and they've started to get bigger and bigger and bigger, first of all, they get really expensive. It becomes increasingly costly for males to produce these structures. They end up having to shunt an awful lot of resources into their growth. So fiddler crabs, again, are the champions. The claw in the biggest males of some of these fiddler crab species weighs as much as all of the rest of the body of the male. So they literally are doubling their body weight in order to produce this weapon. And when these things get that big and that expensive, most individual males can't afford it. It's out of the realm of possibility. They physically don't have the resources to pay the price to produce 
an enormous claw. And so what you find with these weapons, particularly in the fiddler crabs, but in lots of these species with extreme or exaggerated weapons, is you find incredible variation from male to male. If you went out into the wild and you sampled 50 males and you measured how big their weapons are, you'd find most males have sort of intermediate sized weapons. And there's some that have very, very small weapons. And there's some males, but only a few, that have huge weapons. And that's an honest signal because it's always the biggest, the healthiest, the best males, the ones with the most nutrients in the best immune systems, those are the individuals with the really big weapons. With the fiddler crabs, what was amazing was not only was it an honest signal, the size of the claw, but most of the time, instead of fighting with that giant claw, the fiddler crabs walked up and down the beach simply waving their claws at each other. Yeah, it's cool. If you walk up these beaches, you'll see them. They're waving up and down, up and down, up and down, and you'll see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of crabs as far as you can see, and they're all waving these claws up and down, up and down. It's a signal. If battle is dangerous and you have this big, conspicuous, bulky weapon that's easy to see because it's huge, then why lunge into battle blindly? The smartest thing to do is to size your own weapon up against the weapon of your rival, and you really only should escalate that fight if there's a decent chance you'll win, which means if you're equal in size or bigger than the guy that you're waving to. Fiddler crabs end up using their weapons as deterrents. Yeah, they fight, but 90% of the time, the confrontations settle without battle. Because the weapons are different in size, the males look at it, they wave it, they size each other up, and the smaller guy walks away. These animals with the biggest of all weapons are actually among the most peaceful because so many of the confrontations get settled without fighting, and that's thanks to deterrence. In your book, Animal Weapons, you make some parallels with aircraft carriers that because they're so darn big. And so expensive. And so expensive, and also that they have so many resources like jet planes and all of the rest, that they do serve a deterrence function. Yes, they do. And it comes down to the same principles that you see in animals. When these things get really big or really technologically complicated, they get outrageously expensive, and most nation states can't afford it. During the Cold War, for example, the technologies got unbelievably expensive and the arsenals, the sort of cumulative military expenditures of the U.S. and the USSR during the Cold War were staggering. You couldn't have had 42 countries playing that same game. There really only were two superpowers on the landscape at one time that could do it. But you know what? Right now we're painting this picture that's kind of rosy and happy. Isn't this neat? We people are so much like animals and we have these honest, sensible things that we do that balance out our survival and our clear signals of whether to fight or not. But that's not how your book left me feeling. <laughs> me either. That's how it started actually, which was interesting because, again, this was a journey. I didn't expect to find these parallels between animal weapons and our own weapons. But the more I dug, the more astonished I became and the more convinced I became that these parallels really are real. You are tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Jane Palmer. Today, Shelley Schlando is talking with biologist Douglas Emlen about his new book, Animal Weapons. Let's return now to the interview. So one of the conclusions you come to is that when these weapons are really expensive and really big, they are honest signals and they work as deterrents. And so in principle, we should be safer because we have such a spectacularly large and expensive military. But you don't think we are? I don't. The problem is the rest of the story. 
I mean, if you're going to play this game and you're going to draw these parallels, then you have to follow all the parallels wherever they may lead. And the other lesson we get from animals is that all of these populations with big animal weapons have sneaky males. They've got cheaters that break the rules. So, for example, in the dung beetles that I work on, you've got big males with big horns that guard these tunnels And the males with the biggest horns are the most effective at guarding the tunnels. They have access to the females who are down inside the tunnels. Well, there's all these little guys that don't produce horns. And they dig their own side tunnels and they mine their way into the main tunnel. They sneak in beneath the guarding male, shoot down to the female, mate with the female, and sneak out again. You've got cheaters that aren't producing the weapons. They're not paying the price for the big weapons. They're putting their resources into other things. They have really big testes and lots of sperm. They're really good at sneaking in and mating with the females on the sly. But see, I like those cheaters. I like the cuttlefish that use colorful displays on their skin to show that they're ready to mate and how the cheaters, the little guys, go in next to the huge male. And on one side, they're just looking like a drab female. And on the other side, next to the female, they're using all their colors to say, really, I'm in love with you. Beautiful example. That doesn't stop me from being scared. Well, exactly. So cheaters are neat. They're an intrinsic part of the biology of these animals. But what happens is if the cheaters start doing too well, See, cheaters, what they do is they erode the payoffs to the individuals that are actually producing the weapons. So the males that are investing in the horns, they're still producing these weapons that cost 30 or 40% of their body weight. These are expensive. They're spending all their time fighting, 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 fighting over these burrows. Now, in a perfect world, they would get all of the reproductive success that comes with successful guarding. They'd be able to mate with the female in the tunnel. They'd sire the offspring that she produces. But the sneaky, cheaty males get in there and if they steal, say, 25% of the fertilizations from that, the females that that male's guarding, then that male is still paying for the weapons, paying to, to produce them, paying to use them, paying to fight. And yet he's not getting the same reproductive success reward. And so if cheaters do too well, they can collapse an arms race. They can erode the profitability or the cost effectiveness of weapons. And that's where the human parallel got scary. If you look at the weapons technologies that are out there that could, in principle, become tools used by cheaters in the near future, then this picture gets even scarier still. And it's things like weapons of mass destruction. There really is no animal precedent. By weapon of mass destruction, you mean nuclear missiles, for instance. I'm talking about nuclear weapons, and I'm talking also about biological weapons, things that can kill millions to hundreds of millions of people at a shot. There is no crab precedent for that or a beetle precedent for that. The crab would never think of doing that anyway. (laughs) Yeah, it certainly wouldn't be a very effective strategy, would it? Their concept of their burrow, their space is not one that says, I need to kill every other crab on this beach. You're right, because it doesn't add up. So you can have hundreds of battles playing out on a beach with crabs, Even admitting that most of those are getting settled without fights, you've still got lots of fights playing out. You've got big crabs over here fighting. You've got 100 yards away, another pair of crabs over there fighting. It doesn't really matter if crabs on another part of the beach battle it out. It's not going to affect the outcome for crabs over on a different side of the beach. Weapons of mass destruction, if anybody uses those weapons anywhere... It can be catastrophic for everybody. It doesn't take more than two little countries fighting each other with nuclear weapons to cause a nuclear winter, which would affect the whole planet. Exactly. So the crab parallels, we're talking about a situation where we can't let any of the fights between any of the crabs anywhere on the beach ever escalate even once because it would kill everybody. There is no animal precedent for that. The United States may be safer in principle because it has the most carrier strike groups and lots of expensive weapons that make beautiful deterrence. 
But if any of the opponents that we face get their hands on weapons of mass destruction, then all bets are off. I'm just hoping, I didn't hear it in your book, but I'm hoping somehow you as an animal scientist see some way out of this for us as people. I'm not sure I do. And also I have to add the caveat, right, that that I'm not a military historian. I'm a biologist. I've spent my years in the rainforest and all over the world studying dung beetles and rhinoceros beetles with horns. These parallels came as a surprise. But I am a scholar and I put years of research into trying to make sure that the logic is sound. And I've done everything that I can to back up and document all of these sort of lines of reasoning. And there are several really good military historians who have come to similar conclusions about parallels between animal and human weapons. So I think that the parallels are real. But as for where it leaves us, I don't want to be doom and gloom. This is important. I I just want to take a second to say this is a book about extreme weapons, and it is rooted most firmly in stories of animals, crazy species with really wild and wonderful biologies. But there is a message there because there are parallels there. And I think it's important for us as citizens to start to think about what these parallels mean. And if I'm right, and I don't have to be, it wouldn't be the first time I was completely wrong. But if there's merit there, and I think there is, there's something to be learned from thinking these things through. I think the animal weapon stories really can help us look at ourselves differently. And I wasn't able to come up with a happy ending, but that doesn't mean that other people won't be able to. So I like to think that getting people thinking about these things is a really good step. Where it goes from there, you know, is anybody's guess, but I'm sort of excited to see. Thanks to Shelley Slender for that interview. Douglas Emlin's new book is Animal Weapons, The Evolution of Battle. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. This week's show was produced and engineered by Shelley Slender. Our executive producers are Jane Palmer and Kendra Kruger. Additional contributions by Beth Bennett. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Victor Wooten. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett. And I'm Jane Palmer.